Today on Turnout, we are talking with Dr. Sue McDonald, renowned uh, equine behaviorist at the University of Pennsylvania. We're going to talk about stallions um, and the art of making foals. So tune in and turn out. Dude, my throat's going to be screwed by the end of this. I'm so excited. I'm going to have strep throat and or mono just for you. I was actually really excited thinking about, like, if I got mono right now, how skinny I would be at my wedding. <laughs> like, and can I give it to Luke? Strategic mono. Um, timed perfectly. Uh, but the problem with mono is it sticks around for, doesn't it stick around for like a year? I don't know if it's that long. I had mono right before freshman year of college, and I looked good but the issue with it was that I lost like 15 pounds from the mono and then I gained the freshman 15 above my normal weight. <laughs> so it was like a freshman the 30. Freshman 30. Yeah. So it was pretty bad. Anyhow, I'm sure you're going to find it. That's the worst part of mono, of course, the weight fluctuation. Yeah. And the fact that I was managing a horse farm and was exhausted. So I literally would go and muck all the stalls and then go lay on my couch and not be able to move. It was terrible. That's impressive though. Yeah. Um, okay. So Carly, it's, I feel like the Derby, had, I mean, it was like a month ago, but I know people, <laughs> I, it's I felt like it was still, three days it, ago. <laughs> it was a hashtag horse racing in the mainstream story. Hot mess express. Because people were like, what, what, what the hell's going on? Like the horse that won didn't win. Like, you know, it just created a whole new thing. So yeah. I feel like we kind of need to address it, yeah. which is what we're going to do for a little bit. Um, well, first of all, I think it's just a shame. Like my whole thing is, it's just, it's just a shame that it happened in the Derby because, you know, I mean that's, it's just, that's a race where it's the one time where the whole world's watching the watching the sport. And then, I mean, thank God, nothing you know worse than that happened. Yeah. But it's just like to have that instant replay for twenty minutes, and people are just like, what? You know, what are we doing? These are just horses. Why can't we just have the horse that won go to the winner's circle? But I mean, all in all, I think. I think they got it right. Um, you know, you can't, if like the, like Bill Mott said after the race, you can't, you know, if this was any other race, it would have been a, a pretty much a, a no brainer decision. And like, you can't really have concessions just cause it's a big race. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't bother me if they didn't, if they would have left it as it is just because I do think he was the best horse and he was going to win anyway, but you can't say that, you know, you can't say, assume that no other horse that, he got in the way of could have passed him. So. Yeah. And I think, I think that it really brought up a couple of huge things that are um, much broader than just this specific race. I watched it from home. So I actually went to the Oaks. Uh, and on that note, when the Philly humble went brag. down, yeah, humble brag, the Japanese racing association sent me, it was awesome. Um, but when that Philly went down in the Oaks, both my friend and I looked at each other and just said, we're done. Like this Philly just broke down. Thank God she didn't. She had just tumbled coming out of the gate. Um, but I think all of Racing Insiders going into the Derby were just hoping horses got home safe. And they did, and that's awesome. Which is kind of a... You not know, the best way to look at it. No, it's not. But <laughs> just given, given the climate uh, and the spotlight, uh, I mean, normally that's not something I necessarily worry about yeah. because the vast majority of the time, all horses do get home safe, you know, safe for a few minor 
cuts and bruises and things like that. But yeah, just knowing that the whole, like that there's really no room for error in yeah. terms of uh, national perception. And that's, it's, it's fair. I yeah. mean, considering what's been going on. Um, but I, I think it, I think it really showcased um, how, because we don't have a single entity that represents us are the, the numerous voices get quieted or get silenced or don't ever have that opinion. And watching it from home on NBC was excruciating. It was excruciating for the pre-show to hear Jerry Bailey say that if a horse fractures its leg, it has to get euthanized. That's not true. He should not be weighing in on this. Um, we should have somebody like Larry Bramlage talking about how repairable all of these chips and hairline fractures and condylar fractures are and how much we've advanced in veterinary medicine. But then even more so as they're playing through the, the inquiry and replaying it over and over and over, me as a racing fan, I'll be the first person to admit that I was kicking and screaming around my living room saying, there's no way in hell that maximum security interfered with Country House. It just didn't happen. Country House was barely affected there's, this won't be held up. It won't. And so when they actually said that the inquiry was held up and that they were going to drop maximum security behind whoever he interfered with. And just because long range toddy, it, it's kind of a good thing that, um, John court on long range toddy pulled him up. We have this, it's definitely evolving within the last, I would say decade where jockeys, when they know that they're out of the race, they ease up off their horse. And I think that's a great thing. In this case, it kind of screwed maximum security because long range shoddy eased and then you have to put him behind him. So that's why he ended up 17th. But what drove me insane watching NBC was that they didn't explain who actually was filing the inquiries. Was it a steward inquiry? Was it just Flavian Pratt, who is the jockey of maximum, or sorry, the jockey of um, Country House, which made no sense to me? And then we find out 24 hours later that it was John Court, who was the jockey on Long Range Toddy, that actually also filed an inquiry, and they dismissed Flavian's, but they withheld John's. And the minute that they said that, I was like, yeah, I now agree with you. For the last 24 hours, I've been pissed, and it didn't make sense. But when you know the details, it suddenly does. The issue we have as an industry is that those details were within like blood horse articles or the TDN or Pollock report. The average person watching the Kentucky Derby is not reading those websites the next day. So they're still pissed. They're still spiraling. They either lost money that they gambled or they just tuned in to watch a horse race and suddenly horse racing seems political. You know, it seems like it's not just whoever gets yeah, to that finish arbitrary. line wins. Yeah. Uh, but I, I I know credit to the stewards. I think like he's also, like he said, we don't really know that if they would have filed an, you know, had an inquiry, if the jockeys didn't have an objection. So, you know, that's kind of a unfair criticism too, I think, but you know, nobody wanted to have to do that in that race. Uh, and it's, it's just too bad it happened on that stage, but I think it kind of sets a precedent, you know, people say, you know, obviously it's the first time it's ever happened in the Derby. Uh, and there's certainly been plenty of incidents over the years that probably warranted, uh, yeah, some kind of DQ. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think it sets a precedent. Um, we'll see how, it, how, you know, if jockeys just start, I think there was an unwritten, kind of an unwritten code among jockeys in that race like that, that you sort of let some things slide and kind of account for that. There's 20 or 23 year old Colts, um, all vying for the same bit of real estate at the same time. So, and then you factor in the fact that it was a flood, um, which they really got, they really got to stop running Derby day on, uh, <laughs> 
on, <laughs> on, on, on catastrophic floods, but add that to the list of things that, that maybe should they shorten the field? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I think it's going to cascade into maybe some taking some serious looks at, uh, at, at the race itself. Um, and I think that we need to do a better job of explaining what counts as an issue or what you can file an inquiry for, how an inquiry is filed for. Um, you know, it's even, I'm a huge football fan. I love the NFL go Buffalo bills. Um, but we've seen plenty of bad calls be made in the NFL with the same outrage, uh, going back to the saints last year in the playoffs. But at least in that case, there's a ton of people within the football fandom that understand when there is a bad call because it's so specific as to what calls can be made. It's a bit more of a gray area with us. It really is kind of an opinion based thing. Um, But we cannot encourage dangerous riding. We cannot encourage getting away with that stuff. Do I think that, uh, that maximum security's jockey was riding Science. dangerously. Yeah. No, no, he actually. I, I think maximum security spooked yeah. and he held him straight. Yeah, I mean, uh, three-year-old horse uh, on a muddy track. I think he. Sp- may- they think he might have spooked at a glare, you know, a glare from the lights and a puddle, or it could have been anything. I mean, yeah. the horses don't. I mean, they're not machines. Uh, you know, they're running as far as they ever have. They're getting tired. There's 150,000 well, drunk people yeah. screaming. And-, and a friend of mine mentioned that she was like, well, "Why would he have spooked?" outwards because the crowd is on the outside of him and i said because this is the first race that horse has ever run where there's eighty thousand people in the infield on his inside eye yeah there that you can't prepare for that i've been to the derby and i mean i spook around every (laughs) around every corner seriously so i mean yeah and and it's it's i think we can take some solace in the fact that maximum security probably thinks he still won so Mm. hey you know yeah he's he's happy yeah, you know, his he owners aren't that thrilled. No. His trainers and aren't that thrilled. I, I'm guessing this is going to go. This this is going to be dragged out for a while, which I understand why they're upset. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. The I other- don't think much is going to happen in terms of uh, you know reversing anything in the courts because I mean I think no. Stewart's decision is a Stewart decision, but um, I can certainly understand their frustration. But it happens. Yeah. I mean, you know, this isn't the sport to get into if you want. Um, you know, if if you have a if you're thin skinned or, you know, you don't take, you have to be able to handle these kind of things. Yeah. And more so, I think it's really important that, um, this isn't like a one and done thing. Like is the Kentucky Derby, the Kentucky Derby? Hell yeah. Does everybody breed or dream of breeding or owning a Kentucky Derby winner? Of course. But this is the beginning of their three-year-old season. We have horses like Omaha beach that didn't even run in the Derby that are going to be back in a couple of months. And we still have the entire summer season for these three-year-olds. We still have the Breeders' Cup. We still have the Pegasus in January. You know what I mean? Like, if you guys are frustrated by what you saw, so are we. We, You know, the people that are inside it are also confused and frustrated. But it's not really a reason to not um, keep following it. Like, sure, we might not have it. Well, we're not going to have a Triple Crown winner because they're not running Country House in the Preakness. Or Maximum Security. Yeah, or Maximum Security. But how badass is that going to be when that rematch happens? Yeah, and that brings up another point, you know, just the kind of the implications of this goes beyond, you know, obviously the purse, money, and the prestige, but it's like you're talking about, you know, when they're stallions, Mm -hmm. uh, um, Country House can now, you know, he's now, I guess, technically a Kentucky Derby winner. If he never wins another graded stakes race, which he kind of didn't in the first place, (laughs) um, you know, is is he still going to be listed as a Kentucky? I mean, he's still going to be listed as a Kentucky Derby winner, and he's a nicely bred horse, and I'd be surprised if he doesn't 
you know. If, but unless, we were joking that Maximum Security's stallion ads should be like oh, I'm the sure. real exactly. Kentucky Derby winner of 2019. And what? And that's I mean, what a horse he is. I mean, I was kind of skeptical of him uh, just because he they obviously didn't think he was that kind of a horse when he started running. He didn't have much. Much pedigree, really. Uh, I think he's a Florida bred. Uh, By New Year's Day. New Year's Day. I think like a $5,000 But how cool is it that his breeders, the West, bred New Year's Day. exactly. And then had progeny from their own stallions. Like, they've supported this, you know, not just for this horse's life, but for numerous horses' lives down the line. Absolutely. So, like you said, you know, it's going to be a good, hopefully a good season, uh, a good summer of racing, and they get some of these horses back on the same track. Um, but yeah, it's just unfortunate. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate that, uh, a horse that was second the whole time gets the win, but, um, it's, it's fortunate that, uh, everybody's gonna race again. Yeah. And, and on that note, we have another grade one coming up on Saturday. We're not watching the Preakness to find a triple crown, but y'all, we had American Pharaoh and Justify. I think we can take a year off from the triple crown route, but it's still a grade one. It's a huge deal. Please don't rain. Yeah. But also, if you do rain, like, let there be, like, great pictures and videos of people doing, like, mud slides across the infield of the Preakness. But um, there's still going to be some top racehorses running there, and I'm sure we'll all be cheering them on. All right, so that's Kentucky Derby talk. I think <laughs> we, we can finally just yeah, tuck that one in. Yeah, can we all put it away now? Tuck it in, read it a nice story, give it a bath, put it to bed. We're, like, less than, what, 350 days till the next one. Exactly. So, Carl, we have a great show today, but... We do have to pay a little bill, but it's something that you actually use. It's not like you're just endorsing some random product that you've never seen before. (laughs) Uh, And it actually took a lot of uh, hand-wringing to get you to try it because I know you are not a, well, you're a scientist, so you are by nature skeptical, (laughs) which is great, but you were, you know, you've never really been a supplement person and I can understand that. Um, but you've had good results so far with uh, your Equithrive. Yeah, so I am definitely a skeptic, but more so I'm a just a minimalist. Like we, where I keep my three and a half horses, um, we have, it's considered full care, but it's not anything intensive. And so it just takes a lot of effort to get supplements fed, uh, which was the primary reason. But I tried it and for a variety of reasons with a variety of products, I just kind of love it. I have... Um, I have one of my horses, Bodie, who actually has a fractured fetlock, uh, or actually lower than fetlock, a fractured P1 on the joint supplement, just the regular joint supplement, uh, and he's doing amazing. He's gone from almost three-legged lame to serviceably sound, uh, but then I also have my big competition horse, Mac, on the joint supplement, as well as the hoof supplement. Uh, he's got some pretty crappy, crumbly, thin-soled feet. Love it. We actually just took him out of the McLean pads and put him into just rim pads. So I think it's really helped his feet. And then all of them are on the gut supplement. I am a huge, huge fan of probiotics. And that was kind of probably my first gateway drug into the supplement ring uh, last year when I just realized that the the crappy rain rotty skin that I was seeing on my horses, which wasn't being treated by anything else, the minute that I helped their gut, it actually helped their coat. So they are all on a gut supplement um, year round. And so it's just kind of nice that this one company, Equithrive, has actually provided basically every ingredient I need. You know, it's provided the joint supplement, the biotin, the hoof supplement, and then also my probiotic. And it's, you know, 
kind of, it is kind of one size shoe fits all for me and the various horses that I'm taking care of. And to share in the, uh, in the benefits, uh, you'd like to, I mean, you have a promo code, so C-A-R-L-E-I-G-H. Yeah, so equithrive.com slash Carly. 10% off, free shipping, all that jazz. Um, yeah, thanks. Dr. Sue McDonald is a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania's College of Veterinary Medicine and the founding head of their equine behavior program, also the author of the book, Understanding Your Horse's Behavior. Dr. McDonald is also a world-renowned researcher in both stallions and mares, where she associates their behavior in the wild to improve our management of them when domesticated. She has worked on such famed problem cases as War Emblem and is a consultant for a variety of stallion farms worldwide. So, Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I've obviously gotten the pleasure of meeting you a variety of times at some conferences on equine reproduction, but I really think that you're kind of the perfect fit for this podcast because you take science and you make it applicable to the real world, which is hard to do, but you do such a good job of it. Can you just kind of explain to us like what got you into this field and what exactly you work on? Well, I actually today I just received my 35 years of service at the University of Pennsylvania. That's amazing. So, <laughs> so, Golf uh, and and my graduate work preceded that, but I, and originally my career over those 35 years has focused uh, changed focus a little bit, but I started out um studying physiology and behavior and um got into the uh, physiology and pharmacology of sexual function in males and initially as a model for better understanding human sexual behavior and function. Hmm. And then um, along the way, because I was also uh, trained in classic um, behavior uh, ethology and behavior modification and um, related uh, clinical work, I got pulled in the direction of um, looking more at natural behavior and uh, the basis of of uh, behavior in any species, but particularly horses. And um, that that actually turned out to be so much more valuable in practice, knowing that and and trying to implement some of and and enable horses to do some of their natural behaviors was far more effective than all the pharmacologic uh, tools that had been developed um, to that point. So that's kind of how I I've, that career has morphed over the years. And now, were you a horseman initially, or did you use research to get into horses? I, we always had horses as kids, but I was more of a dairy person, um, grew up on a dairy farm and we always had, you know, backyard horses, but I would not have called myself a horse person. Um, and, uh, but, uh, getting involved here, the, the first, um, research that I did was because, uh, my next door neighbor was a veterinarian here at New Bolton center and was, uh, struggling with, uh, some, uh, behavior problems in a very valuable stallion. And when he found out that I was in graduate st- school studying sexual behavior in laboratory species, particularly mice and rats, he thought I was crazy not to <laughs> work with a species that had some value <laughs> to their reproductive function. And uh, he uh, made it happen that I could actually use the stallion as a model as opposed to the mice. 
That's just like so fascinating to me. So I obviously know a considerable amount of your work, but what I, there's the specific idea of the bachelor stallion, the alpha stallion, all of that stuff. Can you kind of give us an idea of how you discovered that and how you've used it applicably in the field? Well, that was that's kind of an interesting story. Again, most of the things that have been most valuable to me and in, in the work that I do and that I feel are worthwhile contributions to the industry happened quite by accident. <laughs> as, um, as they were, always do. We were doing a series of uh, studies with stallions in which we kept for economic reasons, we kept our research subjects, uh, which were pony stallions. Um, when we weren't in between studies, they were just turned out to pasture together. And you noticed a really interesting change in their behavior when they were together. And it got me interested into looking into uh, why would they get along so well. And then I'd run into different uh, situations around the world where people were keeping stallions together and they mellow out and they seem to be very good friends and in between. Um, and then you can uh, put them back in a situation where they're breeding or where they're near mares and they reverse back. And so um, a, a high school student, a very talented high school student was working with me at the time. And she asked the question, well, who, you know, who gets, how does this happen? And who gets to be a, in, in the wild? Who gets to be one of the bachelor stallions and who gets to be one of the breeding harem stallions. And um, so I said, well, let's go to the literature and look. And there was nothing we could find in the literature. There was very little description of this, but behaviorists who had looked at horses, of course, knew that, that there were in, in a population, there were the breeding stallions who held a harem and then the, the surplus or the leftover, so to speak, uh, formed a very nice, tightly, a bonded social group of their own and were served like a little army to protect the whole population. And um, so uh, this uh, young student just kept pestering me like, well, we've got to know the answer. And so I said, okay, well, let's, let's uh, see if we can get funding for a little study. And uh, that was the beginning of our semi-feral herd because in order to actually answer that, we, we, um, wanted to have a model herd living under natural social conditions. And we took all sorts of measures, physical size and, and uh, um, their tenure in the herd, um, all sorts of endocrinologic measures. And uh, we still have that herd going. It's in its 25th year. And um, we still haven't answered Samantha's question, but that's how it, we got drawn into it. And along the way, we just saw so many fascinating things that actually when I had gone out to study more wild horses living under natural conditions, you really couldn't appreciate because you could only be there for a few days or weeks at a time. And it was always at one time of the year when the conditions were favorable, as yeah. opposed to having a herd right here where we we purposefully see see it and measure things um, or record um, social uh, behavior every day of the year. And so when you did this study, one of your main takeaways was that those bachelor stallions have lower levels of testosterone and lower libido, correct? So like your, your alpha stallion increases, your bachelor stallions decrease. Right. And it's actually, um, I'll take the, I know you, you won't mind if I, I, correct you that in in horses there's no alpha stallion okay. it's um alpha is 
a specific term for uh, certain social um, types, like some of the the great apes. That um, there's a an animal in the in the group that is in control of everything, <laughs> and uh, the kids can't pick their nose without <laughs> permission, so to speak. Um, in in the horse, um, the the harem stallion is not exactly an alpha animal. He's in charge of the defense and protection, but uh, other animals within the band, usually older mares, um, share the responsibilities for all the other oh, um, activities. And now I've forgotten your your main point of your question there. Oh, just that the that the external stallions, those bachelor stallions, are actually suppressed to like almost gelding oh, right. levels. Right. Right. And not only are they they suppressed, but the the situation is very plastic, meaning that it can change over time. So if if, say, an older stallion or whatever, for whatever reason, a harem stallion departs from his band, either passes away or gets too old to protect them, um, those bachelors uh, one or more of them can rise up, and as they rise up and assume the the position of harem stallion, their whole reproductive function is upgraded. So their hormones, their reproductive hormones increase, and their testicles grow, and their um, sperm production increases, and the amount of sperm produced for each unit of testicle increases. So it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. And about the time that we were studying this, about 20 years ago, they were just beginning to appreciate this uh, effect in other species, particularly in the great apes, and they had very limited access to material to test. So we were able to fill in the blanks with the horse because we could get samples effectively whenever we wanted. And um, so you, for example, in the domestic situation, say you have a horse and you put him in a barn with other stallions, in all but one of those stallions, uh, and and sometimes all of the stallions will be downgraded to bachelor status. And horsemen have known this for years because they knew it was actually easier to care for stallions altogether in one barn than it was to care for a stallion um, who had access um, to mares and was away from other stallions. Um, and that was because, I mean, they didn't know at the time, but it was because their hormones dropped down sometimes almost to gelding levels um, when they're uh, put in with other males and taken away from females. And uh, the reverse can happen uh, if a stallion is, say, in our herd, um, he loses his harem, he will, his levels will immediately uh, drop down to very low levels, and then they'll come back up sort of to, to bachelor levels. And that phenomenon is now known as social modulation of reproductive function. <laughs> and so cool. it's, it's known to occur in all mammals. And it's a very important um, issue with humans. Um, for example, um, men who are in the military, <laughs> who are surrounded mostly by other men will have um, lower um, reproductive function. Um, same thing happens in prisons where men are isolated or boys' high schools. Um, very interesting measures that you can find out there in the literature. <laughs> That's so strange. It's it, it's it makes total sense in my mind, but at the same time, I'm like envisioning like you know that that one jerk 
at the boarding school. So like his <laughs> testosterone is probably increased <laughs> while he's suppressing everybody else's. It makes so much sense. Um, the other thing though, is taking this to the field, which has always fascinated me. I actually, I think I, the first time I interacted with you was after hearing you give a talk about this. And I actually asked the question of, you know, you're taking this into stallion barns, but coming from me as a yearling manager, it makes sense to prep in yearlings. Cause we separate the Colts from the Phillies and have a barn full of Colts and a barn full of Phillies. And then there's always that one Colt that's a jerk. And the rest of them are fairly gelding-like. But on the flip side of that, you could almost use it to help your prep and actually get them to look more anabolic, per se, if you actually kept the colts interspersed within the fillies because it would help, you know, not have that subset of bachelors if you had all of them within their own barn surrounded by fillies. But can you kind of elaborate on how you've taken this on to stallion farms. I actually, I don't know if I told you this, but I went to Aerofield in Australia and they had like a little side barn for, I guess, one of their stallions. And their vet was saying it was because of a recommendation that you made. So it's, it's worldwide. You are definitely talked about worldwide, but exactly how did you take that into the field and start helping stallion management? Well, that, that phenomenon of, Getting, we did another series of experiments um, to measure all of these changes with switching stallions back and forth from uh, various situations. And it was very clear that if a stallion has borderline behavior and uh, possibly even, you know, not really low, but but borderline low reproductive hormones that within a few days of taking him away from other males and putting him near females, that all of that will go in the right direction. And I'm usually involved because the behavior is an issue, but to me, it's amazing what happens with sperm production. So I'm not sure why it hasn't caught on worldwide for those stallions that are breeding large books of mares, why we aren't taking advantage of that increased sperm production. But in any case, it's it's a very reliable phenomenon. Now, there can be some things wrong with stallions, as you very well know, that they can have testicular degeneration or something physically wrong that the the testicle itself cannot respond to this social effect, but I think they're pretty far, few and far between. Yeah. And we can do some little tests ahead of time to uh, assure ourselves that they have the capacity to increase their reproductive hormones at least. And so there's other ways, you know, we can do this with pushing um, artificial artificially pushing with hormones, but the effects that you get with those are usually not nearly as uh, lovely as when you do it socially. So for example, if you were to give a hormone that will push out some testosterone, or if you give a testosterone itself, it's very hard to get the perfect natural balance that you get with the social effects in that the stallion might get to be a little bit sassy, aggressive, like a cult when he's first being exposed to increased androgen levels. And they, they can even be a little bit savage to the mare in a way that is counterproductive. So it's it's so much smoother when you do it naturally. And uh, it's hard because the horses, especially when you're working with very valuable horses and there's a lot of people making the decision, they, they just find this kind of crazy. 
<laughs> like you're going to take our top stallion who just won these the right to be a top breeder and you're going to take him away from the beautiful barn and put him down in the back 40 with mares <laughs> all around but he's going to get kicked <laughs> well and when people see it, once they see it um some people actually the 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 least valuable breeding animals are the ones who who benefit the most because people are not so reluctant to make changes um they're willing to try these things and once they see it they're like oh my gosh <laughs> this is really different but um so um yeah we we do that and and on the other side um we do have also the problem of uh stall performance stallions who are too hyped up because they're exposed to mares and and not suppressed by other stallions. So we use it in the other direction in helping people to subdue undesirable stallion-like behavior for horses that are not necessarily breeding but but need to be able to control themselves when they're in a show situation or whatever. So how exactly did the um did the war emblem thing come up? Because I think that I think I knew about that and knew your name before having ever met you. It kind of led to some some famous little news reports and everything because you got him to breed mares. So how did that all happen? Well, his first year, um, we were not involved, and they had. Well, I shouldn't say that we were involved uh, long distance through a, a number of different levels of of uh, mediators, and um, he bred. He was given the opportunity to breed many, many mares. I think over the season, he was shown the opportunity to breed maybe over a thousand mares. And he only bred six. And those six, he bred like textbook. Within a minute, he was ready to roll and would breed them. And they all got pregnant and they all fold the six. And, uh, you know, it was very hard for them to uh, figure out what what it was about those those six mares and uh I forget all the time frame but along the way they kind of gave up on the horse and the insurance company paid off on the horse but they were allowed to keep the horse and um then those six horses had um uh all got to the track and all did really well so there was interest in going back to try to figure the horse out so it was two or three years um or more later that they decided to go back and he was still, not only was he um, not responding in general to mares, but he was, um, if you forced him to uh, stay in the breeding shed, he would get very aggressive towards the mares and towards the handlers, like he didn't want any part of it. And um, that's at the point that, um, the insurance company now was in charge because they they owned the horse and were interested in getting him going. And so we were able to get direct access to the horse. And he presented as a very typical what's called a sneak breeder. In the Natural Horse Organization, those bachelors um, do sometimes breed mares. Um, they usually breed the fillies. The, um, the, the fathers don't breed their own fillies. And... Uh, uh, or any of the young females in their own harem. And those uh, fillies are released uh, from the protection of the uh, harem stallion when they're in estrus and they wander to interact um, with 
bachelors and um, some of them that don't wander actually get bred kind of on the edge of like sort of on the back porch of the harem and uh, the the style of the the bachelor is to be very quiet and not make a big ruckus like kind of sneak in and breed and there's some telltale behaviors that I've seen them do again from studying daily these horses here in our ponies here in our net in our semi-feral herd um it's so funny that you say that though sue because the one mustang that we have in our research herd here at uk i would a hundred percent define him as a sneak breeder like that's exactly how he breeds mares and we very rarely pasture breed but the quarter horses are in there you know just with their group of mares happy as a clam and this little dude just stands off to the side and he like runs over breeds in like you know three seconds right. and then runs away yeah. and then like he grazes and, <laughs> and that's exactly and they the little things like they do playful behaviors like these are um in etho- ethological terms these are called um uh disguises or um uh, there's a few other terms for it but they basically pretend that there's something else so they do playful childlike you know full like behaviors like they will floss their teeth in the tail hairs of the mare. They um, sometimes assume the nursing posture. They uh, will play with the the female or other juveniles in the area. These are usually young fillies that are in this situation for a sneak breeder. And uh, that makes <laughs> that makes breeding managers really confused and frankly, sometimes really mad <laughs> that the horse is one minute acting like a baby. They'll also mount other males, which is what playful young animals do. And yeah. it makes, them, I mean, I'm sure you saw some of the headlines on War Emblem. They were like, is War Emblem gay? <laughs> it's a whole other know, study. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> gay studies. Right. <laughs> right. And, um, but it was so clear that that was his problem. And so we were able to, and also he, at that point, because he had started to be aggressive and interventions had been done to try to, to keep him from hurting people. Um, he was in, he was also in a kind of a, a state of being afraid in that situation, right? <laughs> because it was just not working out very yeah, well. And you so go to, we, you we go were to able train to any stallion in the shed. And if they don't have the reward system of actually ejaculating and covering the mare, then a lot of it is just a negative reward. Yeah. You know, like it's a lot of more punishment than pleasure. So uh, eventually we were able to handle the horse ourselves, which I uh, took a fellow who is, well, of course I'm biased, but I think he's one of the, he has to be one of the best stallion handlers ever in terms of being really athletic and able to stay out of a horse's way and not provoke undesirable behavior, but also he understands. He's been here at Penn watching these ponies and he understands and sees when things are progressing in the right direction. And uh, it's an interactive sequence between the male and female. And the other thing we needed to do was to get all of the the uh, restraints off the female and let her look like a normal female and to let her wiggle and move the way they do, which was, it was, it was hard to help these people understand what we were going to do. But once we started doing it, the horse responded so quickly that they were like, okay, (laughs) let's, let's let, what else would you like us to try? You know? So it it was um, just getting them to understand um, that the horse needed this. So he was moved to a quarantine. They cleaned out a quarantine area. 
um, put other mares or put mares there and moved him there away from the stallions. And it was only a couple weeks before he was breeding three a day. And just about every mare that came along, he still was slower with some mares than others. And eventually we figured out that those mares that had not had their cycle manipulated Hmm. with uh, pharmacologic means were more attractive um, than others. And um, so that was, that was very helpful. And that was very helpful for all of the work that we do to realize that a mare that has had her um, uh, uh, estrus induced um, with prostaglandin or has been given a, a, ovulation induction agent. And that goes along with the sneak breeder. The sneak breeder in the wild only breeds once very close to ovulation. So they have an ability to know when is the safest moment to put themselves at risk of sneaking in where that harem stallion might may or may not have the shotgun (laughs) ready on the porch. (laughs) It's just, it's so fascinating because, you know, like I said, you're able to take what you're learning in the wild to then bring it to domesticated animals. Um, We definitely need to have you back because I think that what you have learned with mares and, you know, their endometrial biopsy scores and whether that they have dystocias and all that stuff is even more fascinating. But we definitely as an industry, you know, it's you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. We need to keep handlers safe. So like you said, there's all the restraints and there's you know, that type of side. But on the other side, we need to have these mares be productive. So we're giving them all of the pharma- pharmacological manipulations. And yet at the same time, we have to realize that sometimes those things aren't what's best for nature to take course. For, you know, these stallions to actually want to go breed the mares and or the mares to be truly receptive to the stallions. So it's just kind of fascinating to like bring it all together and see like that actual the cause and effect that he didn't want to breed those mares that were manipulated. It's just fascinating to me. And not only did he not want to breed, he was scared to death. And this, you know, the old saying, a scared horse is a dangerous horse. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, so, and a lot of times I think we don't recognize that all these steps that we take for safety or for efficiency are at some level creating problems <laughs> for us that, you know, otherwise, and, and since, since doing this work, I have to say, uh, I'm not advocating that every breeding shed do this, but in, in breeding sheds where we're, I have a really well-coordinated, comfortable team, we actually have loosened up on all the restraints. So we don't use a twitch or we don't use hobbles or we don't sedate. We just let the mare be sure that she's an estrus. And we do have tools today that we can be sure those mares are really ready. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah, so. Yeah, I think Warren, speaking of Warren, Emblem, a 2002 Kentucky Derby winner, in case anybody's wondering who we're talking about here. <laughs> um, but he was, I know, he was kind of known to be a hot-headed horse um, throughout his lot, you know, throughout his career, kind of very difficult to handle. So obviously that carried over into his stallion career, and I think even now uh, he's here in Lexington, old friends, oh, yeah. and I mean he's obviously in his 20s now, but I think they say he's still pretty fiery. Um, but uh, talking about just thoroughbreds in particular, um, since it's a live cover, um, business, uh, you don't see many stallions, you know, once they're, once they're a stallion, they don't really go back to athletic career. I mean, is that, is it kind of like once you have a, once you are exposed to live cover, I mean, does that kind of change 
is it hard? Would it be hard to get them to focus on anything else? Well, a lot of that depends on how the horse is handled and what its experience has been. For example, there are certain segments of the horse industry where breeding stallions still perform. In fact, they wouldn't get a book if they weren't out there performing. So we know horses have the ability to know when to breed and when not to breed, but um, you know, it, it requires probably a little bit higher skill level in training the horse to know how to get those messages across without getting in a fight with the horse. And if the horse wins the fight, what you've taught him is in order to get what he needs, he just has to fight. So, um, you know, but there are certain uh, parts of the world where horses generally are not castrated and they're, they're used for whatever they're used, whether they're farm horses or carriage horses or uh, breeding horses and all things together. Um, they they are uh, left intact, but there's the skill level there to train them. And uh, in the thoroughbred industry, just the way it works, it's um, people, you know, are not there. Their books are based on their racing performance and not uh, they don't have to keep working at that in order to be a valuable breeding stallion. Now, just to kind of end on that note, Sue, is do you think it's actually harder kind of what John was getting into for say a thoroughbred stallion to live cover actual mares and then still go be around normal mares versus say a warm blood stallion who is collected on a phantom and then goes and shows with live mares and if you train them that the phantom is what's supposed to excite them obviously there's a tease mare but you know what I mean like if you train them that they don't get to jump on a mare to get collected is there a difference in their behavior after that? I don't think we have good data on that, but clinically, my experience is that it's such an individual thing. Yeah. And even for horses and people, for example, we do these ground semen collections where the stallion, instead of mounting, you actually just apply the artificial vagina while they're standing on the ground and they get the job done. And so people, when we started doing that many years ago, people said, oh, we want to have a horse uh, semen collected that way so that he doesn't make the association with mounting. Um, and I've always advised people that I think the horse would mount if there was a mare there. Yeah. And I think you put two and two together and you still need to use a stimulus, usually need to use a stimulus mare, at least to get them trained initially for ground collection, but some many for, forever, they still need to see a mare to get excited enough to get the job done. And, um, so I, I, I wouldn't depend on that and I wouldn't, uh, you know, uh, recommend that people do ground collection just for that reason. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And also the, as we know, the ground collection doesn't work on every single horse, although it would make life a lot easier if it did <laughs> a lot less time and everything. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today, Sue. Like I said, we're going to have to have you back when we have an episode about mares. Cause it's not just the feral stallions that you are researching or interested in so we definitely need to talk to you about the mares as well and maybe tag team with you with one of our lovely infertility vets here in town but um just thank you so much i i love the work you do i love hearing you talk about it i think it's amazing i think it's so applicable to industry and i hope our listeners like listening to it well thanks for having me it's been fun to talk to you we'll catch up later bye-bye So that concludes another episode of Turnout, the podcast for horse people brought to you by horse people. Um, hope you guys have all enjoyed what we've talked about on this episode and tune in in two weeks for yet another. 
We are officially on a variety of sources, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. So like us, subscribe to us, share it to your grandmother, aunts and uncles, friends and family. And uh, we hope to talk to you soon.